Hey everybody, welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm here with my awesome co-host Bala Afshar and our producer L. And uh, we're in the back room and in the green room, we're gonna be asking everybody where they're from. So Mindy, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Yeah, so I am calling in from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I am talking about the power of scarcity, which goes along with my book that's just coming out. Very, very cool, super exciting. Tom, you're back again. What are we talking about and where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. It's nobody's ever heard of. It's 80 miles south of Boston. And more important, it is 15 miles from New Bedford, which was the whale oil capital of the world and the richest city in the world until two SOBs in the middle of Pennsylvania found hydrocarbons and put us out of business. But uh, <laughs> and locally, the reason I'm calling is I've got a new book coming out on the 1st of November, which I will hold up. It's a little teeny book. Um, and I'm very, I'm very excited about it because it's a little teeny book. And combined <laughs> with my co-author's woman by the name of Nancy Green. And Nancy is on everybody's top 100 designers list in the world. And I've always been a design fanatic, but now I'm a design fanatic with a triple capital D. The book right. is the design. Period. Wow, the book is the design. Yeah, All right, we'll talk more about that. That's not an exaggeration. I mean, I, I wish I could kind of show it to you. We laid it out with some, you know, not many words on a page. And after you see a great quote, Tom doesn't bullshit about it for the next three and a half pages. You know, we leave a need erotic to be what a need erotic is. And so it, it, was, it was a ball writing it. It's supposed to be a summary of a summary of a summary. Well, Tom, this is going to be great. We're going to go deeper into the book. Elle, I'm going to turn it back to you and let's start the show. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray is on television every day. You'll find him on Fox Business, Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. 
Hey, thanks a lot with my awesome co-host, co-founder of Disruptive, Bala Afshar. As he mentioned, he's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence and Executives Around the World. Pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. But when he's not heading, hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But like we say, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today, Ra? Ray, we are so fortunate because once in a while, we get to interview legends, icons, titans of the industry. And this is exactly one of those times. Tom Peters is co-author of In Search of Excellence, the book that changed the way the business and it's often tagged as the best business book ever. 20 books and 40 years later, In Search of Excellence was published in 1982. Tom is still at the forefront of the management guru industry. He'll never refer to himself as a guru. I refer to him as a guru. Tom's latest book is Tom Peters' Compact Guide to Excellence is full of inspiration for anyone from age 20 to age 80, from cashier to CEO. It doesn't matter where you are in society and in business. In fact, his message is more relevant today than ever. Tom is best known for his always-on passion for people first, delivering products that make the world a bit, a bit better, developing leaders who stay in intimate touch with the four front li frontliners who do real work and no less than excellence at everything that we do. In 2017, Tom received the Thinkers 50 Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow. He's uh, our most popular guest on Disrupt TV. We've interviewed uh, close to a thousand guests and Tom's appearances have accumulated over 400,000 views on Disrupt TV. He's the reason why I'm on Twitter. So he's one of the best follows on Twitter at Tom underscore Peters. Clearly he's an early adopter of technology. Welcome back, Mr. Peters, to the Shrub TV. I'm without words with all those ridiculously absurd, lovely, thank you guys, both. For that, that kind of the, so the thank you for helping our show become what it is. You've, right. you've, you've catapulted our show. With this legend, because legend means I can't believe how old you are. But all <laughs> the rest of them, icons are right, and the rest of it. Well, listen, I, I want to return the text, if you will. Uh, being on this show with you guys is absolutely fabulous. The records and impact you have had as individuals with what you've written and said is just enormous and over the top. So this is at least as good a deal for me as you think it is for you. And it's a, it's a, re it's a real treat. You're very kind. You're, well, very hey, kind. you're very, very kind. Thank you so much for being on the show. Let's start with the first question. We're really, you know, as we're going through the book, and I had a chance, you know, thank you for sharing some of that with us. But do you believe extreme humanism is relevant for every field? Absolutely. Positively. Unequivocally. Uh, I was a couple of years ago, I saw this thing in the Washington Post, which I've used in my last two books. And it was a study that internal study that Google did of its best employees and its best team. And the interesting thing about it was the best of employees shared eight traits. Eighth on the list was STEM. And all of the other seven are what we 
mislabel as soft traits. Better listeners, more respect for what the other person has to say, uh, shuts up, doesn't talk the whole time. And then they did the same thing with the most innovative team. And Google, which I sure as hell don't approve of, has A teams and B teams. You know, label me a B and I'll act like a B, and that's pathetic. But the B teams out-innovated the genius teams for the same reason. Better ideas, listen to each other, uh, respect for the individual. And so I use that example because obviously Google is not your you know, re retail outlet with three employees. So yeah, it, absolutely so. And you know, a lot of what we're doing here today, I lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years, uh, comes from directly or indirectly our old buddy, Steve Jobs. And the extreme humanism was what the heck Steve did with his product. My BlackBerry was sterile. My iPhone, I mean, we know, for God's sake, people touch and play and fall desperately in love with their iPhones, but, you know, and maybe a little bit too much. We won't talk, we don't have time to talk about all of that, but no, extreme humanism is, is, is more important and particularly on another dimension because the quality of the technology and so on is uh, that copycat products are available a dime a do for a dime a dozen. It's what stands out. And something that stands out takes incredible emotional input to make something, you know, something that's different. I mean, look at you two guys. We're having a wonderful time right now. Uh, you know, Salesforce is as solid a technology company as there is anywhere in the planet. But the, the difference is the people. And, you know, in Salesforce's case, and don't get me going on this, I'm a great fan of their chief executive officer who distinctly does not remind me of a large number of other chief executive officers who shall remain nameless. <laughs> well, you know, what I, what I love about um, your work, not just an incredible body of work with 20 books, uh, read tens of millions to countless countries around the world, but you practice extreme humanism every day. Uh, because you're so active on Twitter, uh, you, which to, to me demonstrates generosity, uh, 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 availability, accessibility, empathy. And, and so you're teaching uh, millions of people. Uh, you recently tweeted, leading is the pinnacle of human achievement. Your task number one is helping others grow and develop and contribute their colleagues and their communities. Your accomplishments, your accomplishment list will be measured by those who went on to be wildly successful in large measure because of the time you spent with them, with you, with you. Now, you've been on Twitter since December 2008. You have tweeted 141,400 times. Good and you've God. Grown, and, and you've grown a network that's uh, 176,000 people around the world, including myself. I am on Twitter because of you. So my question to you is... <clears throat> And to me, it's the best example of living uh, uh, extreme humanism on a daily basis. Why do you spend time on Twitter? What, what's the joy that you get uh, connecting with millions of people on a very regular basis, daily basis? Uh, I actually, there's a wonderful book, best in the century business book, other than, of course, the three, the ones that the three of us have written. 
called Quiet by Susan Kane. And it's about the power of introverts. And on her introvert test, I actually score very high, which would surprise a lot of people. Uh, I just, I like conversations. And, you know, in a funny way, well, I, 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 it's a good question. I mean, I, I, the quality, you know, Twitter, and I think it's probably true of most of social media, is, is self-selective. I have said some things that have triggered some mini firestorms, <laughs> uh, including something recently. But most of it is, you know, conversations with people who are vaguely like-minded and talking about what they've done here, what they've done there. Uh, so it's it's just a I, I I love to chat. I love to learn. I love to listen. I, and, and you know, I have so little to say, and so many people have got so much to say, and that's not some kind of a false false modest, you know, modesty thing in any, in any way, shape or form. I, I do want to say one thing in that regard, and this is, is really important and maybe a little slightly uh, different angle. Uh, you know, we've got a lot going on around the world in our own society. And there's a lot of anger and a lot of distress. And I don't know how to get rid of that. And I'm not talking politics, but people are less inclined to get hooked by radical ideas if they are treated in a thoughtful, in a mm. caring way by their peers. You know, the research all around the world says 20% of workers are connected to their jobs, 80% are you know, just dozing through the process. And my hypothesis, and I don't have a thousand yards of research to support this, is if Vala and Ray and Tom, who are now junior people, have a boss who's really interested in the three of us growing and really engages with us, and we feel like we're doing something important and we feel like we're growing, I think we're a lot less likely to be susceptible to somebody who says, let's go out and raise hell and give people a hard time. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I, we had this little thing. We're not, we haven't done it. We might never do it on called from, from 2080 to 8020. How do we take 20% engaged and 80% disengaged and flip it to 80 engaged and 20 disengaged? And again, it's a little bit like that Google thing. It's things like listening. You know, it's, I'll tell you one little experiment, and and this is so important to me, Uh, and you can't, the good news is you can't fake it, but, so here's the deal, school teacher, I don't know, fifth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, doesn't really matter, stands in the doorway of her or his classroom, okay, at the beginning of the class. As the 17 kids, or 27 even, walk through, he doesn't gush or anything like that, but he nods and smiles at Ray, and maybe there's a little two-sentence remark, or maybe there isn't. Maybe it's just good morning or something. Just inter- little human interaction with each of the 17. Uh, the hard-nosed research says that attendance and discipline problems go down by 25%. 
In wow. fact, measured, measured academic engagement goes up by over 25% just because we engaged. You know, just because suddenly Tom felt like he was being treated as a human being and someone he respected cared about him a little bit. And, you know, I think that translates directly into the workplace. You know, there's a wonderful book that came out called uh, a couple of years ago called Compassionomics. And it's the power of compassion in the delivery of healthcare. And what I love about it is the two researchers who did it are A, M, B, M, Ds, and B, their sons of it, which means that every iota of the research is tested and tested and tested. And here's one little example. You know, you know how busy it is in the hospital and healthcare situation sure. now. If... Uh, Dr. Afshar makes 39 consecutive seconds of eye contact with seriously ill patient Wang. The side effects that come from whatever's going on go down by 40% and the hospitalization stay goes down by 30%. Just it's it's wow. the human to human contact between you know Dr. Afshar and human Wang that that that's so huge to the healing process. And you know they let me be clear, I've got two engineering degrees from Cornell and two business degrees from Stanford, and I will promise you that they did not spend one effing day on those kinds of things. <laughs> wow. That's unfair, so but it's not very unfair. Wow. So, so one of the one of the big things that's happening, right, as as we get to a world that's more technology based, automation and AI are taking place. You know, we're, we're moving from human scale to machine scale, right? And and this is part of your what you're talking about, taking a people first approach. Um, but along with that people first approach, you spend a lot of time telling us uh, that it's important about what you are doing right now will be the hallmark of your entire career. What, what does that mean? Like, how, how should one take that? And, and how, how should they take that advice in terms of how they should perceive where they are in their career and where they want to go forward? Well, and this goes back to kind of what I was saying before, the columnist David Brooks, a couple of years of book, a couple of years ago, wrote a column and he contracted, contracted resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues, <laughs> the degree you got and the number of times you were promoted and so on and so on. And the eulogy virtues are, what do they say about you at your funeral? And at the funeral, <laughs> it's all the people stuff. In my days of speaking all the time, I was a user of, um, of PowerPoint slides. God knows how many millions of the damn things. And one slide I had was a picture of a tombstone, and on it was dollar sign $23,872,643.08. Mr. Jones's net worth when the market closed on the day that he died. Uh, never seen a tombstone with a net worth on it. That's wow. not what the measurement is. It is how you are as a human. And you, in the introduction, you, know, you, you picked up this thing about uh, the idea of the people you help. I was giving a speech in uh, Mumbai, and I was sitting about eight feet from a guy with more medals than you could count, who was the, I believe he was the four-star general who ran the Indian Army. And the Indian Army, by the way, is the biggest army in the world in terms of number of soldiers. And, you know, I was scared to death. I was in the Navy. I got out of the Navy as a young man. 
generals scared me to death, even 50 years later. But at any rate, we got into this thing, and, and he said it so clearly. Um, I'm considering uh, Vala and Ray as my two top candidates for a major promotion. The number one thing I am going to dig and dig and dig is how did the people who worked for them on the way up grow as a function of their 18 months with Vala, their two years with Ray, or what have you. That's the measure. It's how, you know, how do you contribute to an army? You don't contribute to an army by making brilliant decisions. You contribute to an army by, you know, turning people out who grow and make, and it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful measure. And um, yeah, there's one, one other thing, by the way, I just want to say is only related to this, but you know, we are talking to people with real jobs and so on. Um, the most important decisions you will ever make in your career if you are a middle manager above is the selection of the first line managers. First line managers are responsible for dot, 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 all capital letters, everything. That's E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G. You know, the quality of the people, the quality of the work, the quality of the innovation, it's all driven by first line managers. You know, I learned that obviously, because I was in the military for four years. And you know what, the, the army is run by the sergeants, the Navy is run by the chief petty officers, and that's not a throwaway line. But you can, you can never, ever, 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 ever spend too much time selecting first line managers. And never, ever, 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 ever fill an open slot with somebody who is just more senior or the guy who walked past your door at the wrong time. That's amazing. Before we get to uh your your latest book, uh, Compact Guide to Excellence. You were 40 years old uh, when In Search of Excellence was published in 1982. In, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, in 17 days, um, you're going to be 80 years old uh, or young, 80 years young. What do you and mean? You don't mind. That, Come on. <laughs> and uh, since In Search of Excellence, you've written 20 books and we're going to be talking about your 20th. What do you know now that you didn't know 40 years ago when you published arguably the most impactful business book of all time? What have, what have you learned 19 books later that you didn't know when you were 40? Well, at one level, relative to what we've been talking about in the last 10 or 15 minutes, uh, I didn't know how hard it was to do the easy stuff. <laughs> Huh. Wow. Interesting. Wow. I mean, Super how, profound. How hard wow. it is to stand in the doorway and how easy it is to write a great strategic plan. You know, I mean, it's it. I, I would say that was critical. But I do want to be a little bit more precise, Ray, because you've opened the door I like to have open. Uh, the new book, which is the first book I've written that I love, is co-authored with a woman by the name of Nancy Green. And Nancy is on everybody's list as top 100 designers on the planet. She's amazing. Uh, I got turned on by design years and years and years ago. And I love bragging about my new book because the bragging has nothing to do with me. The book is the design. It is the way the ideas are present, presented. It is the urgency, the whatever you want to call it. So a focus on 
incredible design uh, that just makes products special, different, uh, which can be as true with a two-table restaurant as it can be with an exotic product coming out of Salesforce that's going to be launched three weeks from now. And it's always it's always the you know the, the little touches. Uh, I'm I'm always amazed at how many stupid things I come across where if somebody had just been a little bit you know there's this wonderful line when Steve Jobs died I, I think I read this in half a dozen of the obits they said Steve Jobs and I hope that our viewers will listen to my language carefully in this sentence Steve Jobs was not an inventor. He was a tinkerer. Hmm. He played and he played and he played and he played. Uh, Lorene Powell Jobs at one time said Steve and Johnny Ive would talk about corners for hours at a time. It's the it's the perfection of those Apple products that were that was the difference. And you know, a wonderful term, tinkerer, not inventor. It's not happy until the thing is just incredibly awesome. And, you know, both of you guys are up to your ears with software. You know, that's the deal. The deal is those little, little amazing things where something, you know, that word, the job patented, which I thought was weird at one point, intuitive, where something just works right for you because of the way it was designed. So the power of design from the two table restaurant, the Salesforce Inc. to me is you know, 85% of the story. The, and that was not in my first book. Uh, the second thing that was not in my first or second or third book was the effectiveness of women in leadership mm. positions. And my interest in women in leadership positions, which I've been focusing on for over 20 years from now, is not social justice, it's organizational effectiveness. And the literature, the research is clear. Uh, women on average are better leaders than men. I, I really need to say, and I'm trained as an engineer for God's sakes, on average, there are fantastic male leaders and there are awful women leaders. But we're talking about the bell-shaped curve and on average, the female leader as measured by hard numbers will do a better job of leading her part of the enterprise. So th those are two big things that absolutely did not make an iota's worth of appearance uh, in my first or second or, or third book. Well, your 19th wow. book was uh, Testimonials from All Exceptionally Bright Accomplished Women. And you chose your 20th book co-author to be Nancy. Uh, so clearly your, your actions in terms of publishing these best-selling books are aligned with your vision in terms of both design and inclusivity and equality and understanding that the product is better when you have a diverse uh, yeah. contributors. So you're, yeah. you're living, you're living your words, which is another important. I think this is why people love you, because you know some people, their their actions and their words are not always aligned. What I have found over a decade plus of following you closely on social media and had the privilege of meeting you in person, what you say is completely aligned with what you do. And that authenticity can be felt by anyone who's ever come in contact with you. 
Sorry, Ray. I apologize. I just have to say that. Okay, go ahead, Ray. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, no, bro. First of go all, ahead, forget, forget the substance. That's an incredibly kind thing to say. Especially, I'm only a few days in my 80th birthday. <laughs> yes, 17th, 17th. <laughs> I want everyone to know November 7th. Mark it on your calendar. All our, all it's our special day. It's, it's a special yeah. day. <laughs> well, but, I so. now, but I now have a goal relative to that birthday. I uh, I have a little heart rhythm problem, and I have a pacemaker, and I just had my semi-annual pacemaker uh, exam about two days ago, and I have two and a half years of battery life left. And so my first goal is to outlive my pacemaker and get a new pacemaker. We have <laughs> goals, right? We will be celebrating Those your 90th on Disrupt TV. Don't worry. Don't worry. I don't know Those anyone are... with more energy than you, including Ray. You're 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 one of a kind. Go ahead. Ray. Those are tangible goals. And but you actually put out something in your book that's actually really profound. It's not just the best path forward. It's the path that can engender purpose and pride in all of us who perform the work. What do you mean by that? Hmm. Well, one thing, if I'm interpreting a question correctly about, I mean, because you a, spend time talking about why this purpose and pride changes yeah. the way that creates that humanity, that human yeah. side. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm an engineer with business degree <laughs> that didn't come naturally my father was an accountant uh, i my parents didn't have any money and the navy paid my way through cornell and in return i gave them four years and two of those four years for various reasons ended up being in Vietnam. And my father was a wonderful guy, but the most impactful human being, along with my mother in my life, was my first commanding officer in Vietnam, wow. Richard E. Anderson. And, you know, we I was a combat engineer, Navy CB, and and Anderson's, honest to God, Anderson was as tough a person as either of you guys have ever worked for. And he just, he, he did not like his sailors. He loved them. And it smelled from a mile away. He cared about them, which didn't mean that he didn't give them hell when they were late, which didn't mean that people didn't get in trouble, anything like that. I mean, almost to the contrary. But God, you know, you, you die before you let Captain Anderson down. Wow. And it was a, wow. it was a humanity that was a, it was a smile, but not, it was, he, he liked, you know, he, when, when that young enlisted man who, you know, whether he'd come out of a juvenile hall or wherever else, when Captain Anderson saw him, he always had a smile for him. And even if the guy was effing up a little bit. He made it clear that he cared about him as a human being. And when somebody does that, of course, you'll, you won't go the extra mile. You'll go the extra gajillion miles. And so 
that was that was the real that was the real 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 breakthrough about you know the the importance of humanity and i think since as you guys know so much better than i as the technology continues to move at the speed of light paying attention to that is a literal life and death issue you know, you not believe that a lot of the pain that's going on now socially is people who feel left behind or and, not listened to yeah yeah and, and yeah and and as you also both know from your work on the front edge of the industry like mr jobs it doesn't have to be that way in technology yeah. it doesn't have to be that way you know there is thoughtless technology as much as there is a thoughtless waiter, if you will. Sure. And, uh, you know, that, that, that human factor that, I mean, I, I, don't, I just, but, you know, one thing that's really, really key again, and it, and it goes back to those first line managers, I can't fix all of humanity and neither can you, but incredible care in the people you hire and the people you promote. You know, one of the people I quoted in my book and I can't remember his name. You know, I'm going to be 80 in 17 days, so I can't remember any names. Bala. I regret saying uh, that. <laughs> I can't remember his name, but his he he runs a biotech company, and he said we only hire nice people. Mm. And he said Profound. in a biotech company, the three of us, as brilliant as we are, couldn't even understand the name of the degree that some of these people have. Wow. But he said, I discovered that even if it was the most sophisticated degree on earth, hey, there are a bunch of nice people who have those degrees. Don't hire the jerks. And, you know, just the thoughtfulness and the decency. And, you know, and, and the wonderful thing I do love about my Ph.D. training in organizational behavior is the, the social psychological sciences are just as frigging hard nosed yes. as physics. You know, it's back to my compassionomics, friends. 39 frigging sentences and Ray gets well faster. Seconds wow. and Ray gets well faster. So it's this is measurable stuff. This isn't good. It's, you know, hard nosed, measurable stuff. And it's it's and and you and, you know, as I did have said many times about my age and I said it 10 years ago, the number one goal in life is as an old man or old woman, presumably, is to be able to walk past the mirror without barfing. <laughs> I love that. Tom, did you ever get a chance to tell Captain Anderson how you felt about his impact on you and your life? Yeah, and where is he now? He's in the grave. Uh, I don't want to answer the question. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I, I'm going to answer the question, which is what I mean by I don't want to answer the question. Uh, we're all, and I'm certainly one of them, are sloppy. I was quote unquote too busy and missed my last chance to visit, to visit him in Montana a dozen years ago. And I'm sure that the three of us share the same thing. And I'm not suggesting I don't um, at 80. and. You know, we have it at your age, too. There, there are a bunch of days that you'd rather not remember the left turn that should have been a right turn. And yeah. you know, I'm 
here I am talking to your jillions of people and I'm really still tearing up. Uh, for having Tom, you know, something time. drives you more than Ray, me and anyone I've ever known in terms of your generosity, accessibility, shared wisdom. So those left turns that may have been right, uh, something drives you. And, 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 you know, I just hope and pray that uh, I could uh, grow up to be Tom Peters. Well, I've had the chance to be around you in person and both of you guys to some non-trivial degree. And uh, I, you know, obviously don't know you intimately at all, but I uh, think we were all three lucky enough to be uh, cut from that cloth to a significant degree. And, uh, you know, our ability, you know, what, what you're doing with the show, with your lives. And, and again, you know, thinking, and I don't know much about Salesforce, but uh, your ability to bring that into the life of a, of a techie, techie, techie company, the techiest of tech companies. It, it's, it's, you know, I lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years. This is, you know, the, the greatest, I had a breakthrough day and I know it. I mean, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, when we started research from search of excellence, my co-author, the late Bob Waterman and I worked for McKinsey in San Francisco. And there was a middle size, quickly growing company 30 miles down the road from us that had a vaguely familiar name these days called Hewlett Packard. It was not today's Hewlett Packard, yes. which unfortunately has not lived up to my expectation. Giant, giant, giant companies uh, rarely do. So Bob and I, uh, I, I was a junior guy on the team, set up an interview with John Young, who was the president of AP at the time. You know, we, our office was in the uh, 48th floor of the Bank of, Bank of America Tower in San Francisco. I went up there to the top floor one time and all of the china on which you drank your mid-morning tea had come directly from Buckingham Palace. Uh, so we go down to Palo Alto, you know, we go up to the front desk and said, you know, we have an appointment with John Young. In the B of A building, the assistant to the assistant to the assistant assistant would have come and gotten you 20 minutes later. This guy comes walking out and he said, hi, I'm John Young. You know, whoops, something's different going on here. Wow. Uh, and then he led us back to his palatial office, which was an eight foot by eight foot cubicle that he shared with the secretary with half walls. But wow. not that was the magic moment. The magic moment was when he introduced us to MBWA or managing by wandering around. Wow. Uh, and you know, he took us on a wander after this conversation and we were in, in the engineering spaces. <laughs> I'll never, ever, ever forget this. And, you know, there was some guy over in the corner at one of them big computer terminals in 19, whatever it was, 79. And this old fart was talking to him and they were engaged in this very intimate conversation. And so John says to Bob and I, said, come on over, I want you to meet somebody. And so we went over and these two guys were dabbing on and and John leaned over and he said, Bill, I want you Tom and Bob, Tom and Bob, this is Bill Hewlett. It was like, that was what they call, wow. I don't know what the language is appropriate on this show, but that's an oh shit moment. That's an, 
No, but it wasn't. But here's the oh shit moment. And it has nothing to do with virtual, non-virtual, or what have you. MBWA managing by wandering around taught me two engineering degrees, two business degrees, taught me that leading is an intimate, exact perfection word choice, an intimate act. Wow. That's what leading is. Absolutely. And I literally learned it that day, though it, you know, it took me 25 years to figure out what I had learned. And, and uh, it was just, it was huge. It was huge. And I think as, as the three of us, you guys more than I, because of the, the intensity of your schedule, that kind of intimacy in a different fashion can live in our much more virtual world today. I, when, when I started getting involved in this stuff, when, you know, my wife is a textile artist, we didn't have any masks in the beginning. She and some of her friends were, you know, sewing masks and so on. And I'm sitting on my butt and said, you know, what the hell are you doing? And so I had a moment of incredible egocentrism. And I said to my good colleague, Shelly, See if anybody wants me to, you know, do a show and talk about leadership in the, you know, in the in the times of a, of a pandemic. Uh, but it was the beginning. The learning experience was that the three of us are having what I would call an intimate conversation right now. There's there 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 need not be sterility associated with this thing called distance virtuality, what whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Uh, you know that was a that, that was a, that was a breakthrough for me. I mean, I loved it. You know, I I put a lot of energy into a speech, and and Susan, my wife, said I understood about the intimacy thing when I watched you do yes a one hour podcast, and you were exactly as exhausted as you were when you walked. <laughs> maybe even more. Maybe even more. Maybe, you will... Yeah, that's a non-trivial comment, by the way. Yeah. Maybe even more. <laughs> You really have to make sure but, <laughs> we feel it. Tom, we feel it. We're we coming feel. through the screen. Go ahead, Ray. But, but, but Tom, I think this is really important. I mean, the collection of life experiences, the book, the wisdom, the engineering background. Um, I mean, these are very important areas. I mean, you know, you, you've incorporated some of the things from the little big things in your story about, you know, the silver star with, uh, you know, your commander. Uh, I think this is pretty powerful, right? And if you want to get a compact guide to excellence, this is it. Tom Peters' compact guide is available November 1st. You're getting a preview here first on Disrupt TV. And Tom, we really, really appreciate you being here i don't know which way to go i think it's down that way or over there um, but welcome welcome thank you so much here tom and of course uh, we'll definitely be talking to you soon so well, well tom peters always tom always peters always underscore you guys you, you're you always raise my game and i deeply appreciate it and you're fantastic human beings to be around lucky me thank you thank you sir congrats thank in you 17 so much. days <laughs> i know <laughs> look forward to it <laughs> Ray, uh, um, it's it, it's an honor, you know. I, I I read Tom's books in grad school, and I've been reading them all along. By the way, this is a show where we do invite the best and brightest rock star authors, and it's no exception with our next guest, <laughs> Mindy Mindy Weinstein, author of The Power of Scarcity. Mindy is a leading expert in digital marketing and has been named as one of the top women in industry globally. Founder of digital marketing firm Market Mindshift. Wendy has trained thousands of professionals from organizations of all sizes, including Facebook, 
uh, Weather Channel, World Fuel Services, you know, these small companies. Small companies. <laughs> I mean, Nobody Mindy, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Mindy is a PhD in general psychology with an emphasis in technology and is a marketing instructor at Grand Canyon University and the University of Denver, as well as a program leader of the Wharton School of Columbia Business School. Um, Mindy is also author of a forthcoming book, The Power of Scarcity, Leveraging Urgency and Demand to Influence Customer Decisions. You can follow Mindy at M-I-N-D-Y-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Welcome, Mindy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. But I don't even know how I can go after Tom. <laughs> All that. I even wrote, I have my new life mantra, and it's to walk by a mirror without barfing. That's actually what I wrote. Like, the next time you see me, it's going to be behind me. But that's actually so profound and funny that I'm like, wow, that's actually a good way to think about life, really. It really is. It really is. <laughs> so, well, you know, this is, this is an important piece, right? I mean, what you're talking about is something that everyone has to start thinking about, right? We've right. gone from, you know, thinking about a culture of abundance to a culture of scarcity, back to resources, back to where we're going and how to change our mindset. So let's start by asking, really, what is scarcity marketing? What are we talking about here? And uh, what, what has this become so important? Such a great question. So I'm going to give you a very simple answer to really what is scarcity and then getting into a bit more on the marketing side of it. So scarcity, what I have studied and written about, I'm looking at scarcity from a psychological lens. And that is what I studied with my PhD. That's what I do as a marketer. It's all about psychology. And so scarcity really is unavailability. And it can be caused by so many different things. But at the root of it, it is something is unavailable to us or hard to get. And it really comes down to four different types of scarcity. And that's what I break out in my book. It's demand-related scarcity, supply-related scarcity, time-related scarcity, and also limited edition, which is actually a subset of supply-related scarcity, but it's so massive and has such a huge impact on us that I did bring it out. But what was really interesting, and, and I'm already, I'm a teacher, so you can always stop me and say, okay, <laughs> you've explained it, now let's move on. But, you know, for me, why I got even so interested in this whole topic, you know, my background is in marketing. I'm a marketing practitioner. I have studied it, of course. I've taught it. And so when I was working on my dissertation within my PhD program, I was naturally drawn just to the idea of what motivates us, you know, as consumers. And even from my own knowledge, you know, being a practitioner, I'm not going to sit here and say I don't fall for scarcity marketing and I know what's happening in the brain and I still sometimes will say oh that's hard to get I think I want it so for me the more that I was starting to explore what are those motivations I realized really quickly that the uh, really the principle of scarcity something again being unavailable unavailable to us is such a huge impact on us and so innate in us to overcome anything that's scarce we want to rectify the situation. And so that's what led me on that whole path. So I know you asked about what scarcity marketing is. That's like the whole big picture. But I mean, we can break it down as we go too. You know, it's funny when I was trying to decide on whether I would get into the cryptocurrency mm -hmm. space, somebody told me if, um, if every millionaire in the world wanted to buy one Bitcoin, they couldn't because there's only 19 million Bitcoin and there are more than 19 million millionaires. So I thought, wow, uh, the fact that it's a fixed supply means something to me. So anyway, that, that, that scarcity mindset 
or, or that that statement actually led me to actually invest in the space. So my question to you, and of course we experienced uh, scarcity or buying with the pandemic, uh, mm-hmm. certainly in the last two and a half years, cer- certainly early 2020, when you know you couldn't leave your home and you were strict social distancing, and we saw lots of consumer products being bought in bulk. Uh, when you didn't necessarily need to. Uh, so definitely a, a, a level of scarcity mindset that I recall during the pandemic. What, what happens to our brain when we experience this feeling of scarcity? What, what, how, can you explain to us in a way that we would understand what causes us to, you know, not pa- maybe panic by or think about investing like I did once I recognized scarcity was an element? Absolutely. So, On a side note, you're talking about the pandemic. That's what motivated me to take my research that I have been have been working on and really put it out there for the mainstream because I watched toilet paper running out of stock, you know, and and people (laughs) rushing. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm watching these theories and these academic studies play out in our everyday life. And so, you know, but I was right there too buying toilet paper. So (laughs) concerned about it. But then that goes to your question, you know, why why is that? And Again, why is scarcity one of the most powerful influence factors? And it does stem from really our early ancestors because they were trying to survive when there were scarce resources. When you look back at empires over the years, the ones who were in control, they had control of water. They had control of the food supplies. It's always about those resources that we need. So even today, modern age, What happens is our brain, when we are exposed to something that is unavailable, there's actually been brain scans done. So neurological studies that use MRIs that look at, okay, so what happens to the activity within the brain? And in these scarce conditions, what happens is someone will skip the normal decision-making process that they might've gone through before and the way that the activity on their brain works, it's quick decision. Because what happens, our brains are like, okay, quick, we got to make sure that we don't have our freedom taken away, which could be freedom to buy a pack of toilet paper. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be freedom to something huge we're talking about, but our brains respond to that. And then there's some other things, and it definitely does depend on, you know, the type of product or the service, but there's some situations where we'll take a mental shortcut and our brains are always looking for those mental shortcuts especially today's day and age when we are bombarded with information and just think of it this way. So, and I'm sure this has happened to you and it's happened to me and it's happened to most of us. You might be at the grocery store, let's say, and you were buying a product you hadn't bought before. And so you don't really know which one to choose. And you're looking at, you know, the aisle and there's one brand that maybe only has like one or two left and the others have a bunch left. And if the price is pretty similar, you're automatically, and you probably have before, you're gonna reach for that one that's almost out. Because to you, you just took a mental shortcut. You're not thinking to yourself, I'm gonna take a mental shortcut right now, and I'm gonna go ahead and buy that toothpaste instead. It doesn't happen that way. But you just grab it because what's happening in your mind, you're taking a mental shortcut because you're just assuming that many people wouldn't be wrong. That many people wouldn't buy that particular item if it wasn't good. So there's a lot of that. I mean, so, and there's so much, again, with the brain. If you look at upcoming Black Friday and the other thing that happens when we get in a situation where something's unavailable and we start to feel like other people are about to get that item too, we do feel that sense of competition. So that it's no joke with a Black Friday. There's yeah. actually a physiological response, which is something we've also seen in academic studies 
but you might have experienced it before too, or you know, you might even be in line at a fast food place knowing that they're almost out of whatever it is you're about to buy or the donut shop, because I actually had that happen, where I'm like, don't, please don't buy that sprinkle donut. I want that one. You know, and you almost start to get a little sweaty, your hands are just, you know, getting anxious about it because there's competition. And so all of these things that help happen to us and we can't help it, you know, again, it's how we're wired and it's what brain scans have shown. So it's not even us just saying these things. We've seen this activity. I think I'm a victim of all of this. As you're talking, I just realized I just bought a car recently. And one of the selling points to me was it's one of 400 ever made. And I'm like, oh, one of 400 ever made. So, you know, I, I think I'm, I think I, I don't want to say fall victim of scarcity marketing, but I, whether it was Bitcoin or this car, I feel like, yeah, I, I, my brain does take a shortcut to, oh, there's only a few of this. Maybe I should get one. Sorry. Go ahead, Ray. I'm just yeah, analyzing yeah, my the, own habits. The, but, but the implications are huge, right? So, so if I, I'm in Scottsdale and I'm at the original don rainbow donut or local donut or original rainbow donut cafe, you know, if I only leave like three donuts left, maybe I just do that deliberately to get the ones I want sold. I mean, there could be some great marketing implications if you go out and, you know, change things around that way. Um, but but this is this is interesting, right? Because you're basically talking about FOMO here, right? Mm -hmm. like, you know, mm -hmm. what is what did, what didn't I get that someone else got? Fear of missing right? out. Yeah. Yeah, that fear of missing out is huge. Talk more about how FOMO ties back to scarcity and and you know potential marketing strategies. And can we overcome it? Because I maybe mm -hmm. not want to buy the next thing that I find out there's only a few of because I probably don't need it. But oh, anyway. it's a limited edition. There's only three. Let's go do it. <laughs> You know what's really ironic, Ray, is I actually, when I said the thing about donuts, um, we'll have to talk later. I was thinking of rainbow donuts. I'm not wow. even kidding. <laughs> that's so wow. And that's where I was experiencing it. Like, oh, okay. So it is one of the donuts. best donut shops on Bell Road. Right. If you ever go out there in Scottsdale, it's one of my favorite donut shops. So. That's the one I was talking about. Okay. And the exception oh is just there kids in front of me, they can have the sprinkled donut. I mean, I'm not going to do that, right? <laughs> we'll let them have it. Okay, but FOMO is actually, so that is something that does come up. And the whole idea behind FOMO, and so of course that's our fear of missing out, but it's based on a deeper psychological theory known as loss aversion. So before I lose everyone going down that route, just think of it this way. We have a bigger reaction when we fear we're going to lose something than excitement for when we're going to gain something. And a really great way to think about it is we've all been in a situation where you might have walked down on the sidewalk and you spot a $20 bill or $5 bill. You, you see some money. That's exciting. I mean, we're not going to say that's not exciting. You put it in your pocket and you're super excited. You've also been in a situation where we've misplaced a $20 bill. And that feeling you have that you lost that, it's stronger than the excitement mm. for gaining that particular $20 bill. And so just recall, you've probably been in that type of situation before. And so that's really what happens here. And so when we see that either something is running out of a stock because there's a high demand or there's a wait list, wait lists catch our attention. So those are yeah, huge things. Yeah. You know, we're like, well, we want to be on the wait list. Um, other things that happen with fear of missing out, if we know that there is a sale and it's about to end. Um, I like to give the example too of Kohl's because I feel like they're brilliant with creating FOMO and the whole idea of loss aversion. You go and you spend a certain amount of money and what do they give you? Kohl's cash. 
it has an expiration date and the expiration date is not very totally. far so you're excited you got cold cash how many times have you not spent your cold cash i mean i know it totally works Totally works. Works. <laughs> but it's not it's not fear of missing out. So when it comes to scarcity, when we feel like we're gonna lose that opportunity if we don't take action now, it will cause us again to skip those steps that we normally take in the purchase decision. We're gonna also start to focus on that item that's hard to get because we want to make sure again that we're not gonna miss out or lose in some way. But really a way to overcome that is understanding as much as I'm talking about loss aversion, there's something else that's very powerful. We will, I mean, I'm not going to say we're not going to regret if we aren't able to buy something that's running out of stock or hire a service because they're just too fucked up now. But that sense of regret is not going to last. It's actually, and that's another thing that's been seen through academic studies, that sense of regret is short-lived. So as a consumer, you know, and kind of going back and forth, because I do put my consumer hat, my marketer hat, from a consumer perspective, you know, stop and say, okay, wait a minute, why am I truly buying this? Give yourself some time. So it's not that impulse. And most likely you're not going to continue to regret that decision to not buy. So that's also really important. And, and I mean, again, to be transparent, I, I buy things that later I thought, why did I buy that? I got caught up in the frenzy of it all because it's just super exciting, which is also what happens. We get really excited too. Can I flip that with perceived loss versus perceived gains? Like which one's more powerful? Perceived loss is loss. The idea of losing is a lot more powerful. I even included a quote from um, a tennis professional tennis player in my book, and he was on this huge winning streak in the 70s. And when he was interviewed, one of the things uh, that he was asked was, you know, what's the secret to your success, basically? And he said, not wanting to lose. <laughs> well, not all of us in a way. I mean, it's the motivator. So I thought that was really interesting. So that is a lot more powerful. That's amazing. Well, thank you for your insights. Uh, and as I was listening to you, yeah, it, it, I totally can uh, relate to everything that you said in terms of when I think about the big purchases I've made. And uh, I'm going to read your book and uh, maybe combat some of that fear of missing out and, uh, and make no, I'm, more. I'm going to play on that for you, Molly. Why would you get one of these? It's a limited edition. Yeah, well, this, this is Ray talking. Who was the first person I know who had like the gullwing door Tesla and, you know, before, <laughs> because, because it was a wait list and people around right. the world were waiting. So I think both you and Ray and, Ray and I follow. follow we're your, victims. We're victims. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we're here with Mindy Weinstein, author of The Power of Scarcity. You can follow her at Twitter, M-I-N-D-Y-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Thank you so much. And of course, catch her book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, it is an amazing book, and I believe it's coming out November 3rd. Um, oh, congrats. And it's a number one new release in search engine optimization. I don't know how you got that category, but I don't congratulations. Know. I don't know. It switches daily. Sometimes it says number one in market research, which is really what it is. And so um, it's just kind of fun to go that's on great. and see which one is, which well, category it is. That's great. Number one selling author, Mindy. Here we go. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. That was awesome. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, you know, these are, uh, I can totally understand uh, the power of scarcity in marketing um, and brands that can gracefully, uh, you know, uh, create demand, not using fear, uncertainty or doubt, but, you know, talk to exclusivity and, and, uh, and, and, and you see that quite a bit um, 
in terms of brands that I consider to be, you know, successful marketing companies. Next week, Ray, is episode 299, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken. Let me help because we're doing CC. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not next week. This is actually November, uh, November 4th. November 4th. November. We have a... We have some conference we're going to next week. <laughs> yeah, don't gonna, worry about it. Yeah, yeah. With, with 400 of the best and brightest CXOs around the world at this conference called Constellation Collect Enterprise at Half Moon Bay. That's where I'm going to be. I don't know where you're going to be, Ray. But a week after that, <laughs> by the way, those of you listening, you know that's Ray's conference. And it's one of my favorite places to be every year. And I think this is my seventh or eighth CCE. Uh, every year it gets better. Now, so in two weeks... November 4th, we'll be here for episode 299. We have Brian Wong, former Alibaba executive and author of The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. That's his new book. We have Ajit Singh, co-founder, executive chairman of ThoughtSpot. And we have Jeremy Utley, author of Idea Flow. So we have two authors and an executive of ThoughtSpot on episode 299 in two weeks November 4th. Ray, closing thoughts on the legend, that's Tom Peters, and Dr. Mindy talking to us about scarcity. Well, you know, these things are actually very well related, right? When we think about what's happening with extreme humanism, like we, we feel like we're in a world where we're totally out of control, right? Where, where things are happening around us, technology's taken over our lives, and really that it's the human touch that matters. And when you put that human touch to work, what's interesting is, you know, as humans, we, we behave irrationally, right? And, and if you understand how irrationally we behave, um, you know, we can actually, you know, think about how power of scarcity comes into our world, right? It, it plays a role in our decisions. It plays a role in our lives, right? It takes back to some of our really, you know, primal instincts of how we react and make decisions. And, and it's kind of interesting, right? It, it may get us more in touch with our humanism or help us understand maybe our humanism could be actually dangerous to ourselves, but we will find out. Mm-hmm. But I think that's all. But this, yeah, this is what all, it all comes down to really is this changing world and changing dynamic that's in front of us. I'm going to see you practicing extreme humanism next week because as the host of hundreds of the most powerful men and women in business who are going to convene at your conference, what I will see is from 7 a.m. to midnight, you going around making sure everyone has an exceptional experience, which means we can't have a show on Friday because you're shattered. (laughs) Being a host at one of the most influential technology business leadership conferences in the world. And it's a privilege for me to be there. And uh, I hope that we get to see all of you in two weeks. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching and we'll see you November 4th. Bye everyone. Take care.